Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Second Amendment and mass shootings. So, Richard, the news cycle has been dominated the past several days by this pretty horrific shooting that occurred uh, out in California at the end of last week. And of course, every time – this is not the first time that we've seen this recently and, and every time that something like this happens, we start relitigating the Second Amendment in the press. And uh, as an example, a piece in the New York Times by uh, Jonas Era from a couple of days ago making the argument that you hear quite a lot that our modern interpretation of the Second Amendment is at odds with the text itself, that this was really almost exclusively about militias, about sort of collective institutions, not about individual rights to bear arms. How do you respond to that? Well, generally, I have a lot of sympathy for that particular position. Um, I think it's always useful in this particular case to actually read the full, full, the full text of the Second Amendment because the first half of it sometimes tends to disappear. It says, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Now, the question is, what's the relationship between the militia and the individual right? And if you look at this, a well-regulated militia means in effect that the various kinds of armies that the states put together, sometimes with permanent troops, sometimes they were unorganized and you just called people up for particular cases, were in fact an essential element of the constitutional design uh, back in 1787 and 1791. In fact, one of the striking features about the Constitution is it has a large number of provisions which are designed to deal with what the federal government ought to do when a war breaks out amongst the various states and the Republican form of government clause, the guarantee clause, in effect was designed to make sure that the United States, not the Supreme Court, but the United States could supply troops to states that were subject to insurrection on the one hand or invasion from another state on the other. And so these guys were really worried about their militia and they were also worried about it because they thought it was an appropriate counterweight um, to the national government. They were very suspicious of standing armies, only allowed the appropriations to be for two years. This was not their view with respect to navies, which had essentially unlimited appropriations because they can't occupy territories. They can only defend national borders. So this clause really makes a difference. And when uh, Justice Scalia in the Heller opinion and when the National Rifle Association on its uh, entry hall simply cuts out the first words on a well-regulated militia being necessary for the security of a free state, they get the wrong balance. Now, I don't treat this as an issue of collective versus individual rights, which is the way Mr. Nasera does. I tend to treat it as a federalism issue, meaning in effect the purpose of this particular clause is that the amendment binds the federal government, even though it's not mentioned by name. And it does so in a way to make sure that the states are free to organize their own militias for their own self-defense in the way in which they start to see fit. And that essentially means that you have to keep both clauses in this situation and not just simply detach the first one from the second. One just last point is you actually look at Article I of the Constitution 
uh, does contain several clauses relating to the militia, and these essentially uh, call for a kind of a joint jurisdiction over the militia in which the national government sets the standards or the discipline as it's called uh, by which the militia is trained, but it's subject to state officers and can be used for local situations. And the reason that you need to have the standardization in the militia is because if it's called up into national service, you have to make sure that the parts interpenetrate one to another and can operate as a coherent whole. The president cannot just call up the militia. He can only call them up pursuant to an act of Congress. So you get this elaborate system of separation of powers. And I think that the Second Amendment is just the last part of that. Um, I don't think, in effect, you can get rid of the first clause and understand what it's about. You mentioned the NRA a moment ago. What do you make of the argument that has been present in a lot of the coverage of the last couple of days? It comes up every time that we touch on this issue that the NRA has sort of hijacked the Second Amendment. That Their their view really has to do with policy advocacy and, and they are not sort of defenders of the Constitution in the way that they pretend to be. Well, I think that's true of everybody who tries to hijack the Constitution. Um, uh, about seven or eight years ago, I wrote a book called How the Progressives Rewrote the Constitution. And one of the things that's the most painful about the debate over Obamacare and similar types of issues is this absolutely odd insistence that this comprehensive federal regulation of local insurance industries is part of the original constitutional design. And I think that that's all wet in effect and completely erroneous as a matter of history, which is what I write about at great length in the um, classical liberal constitution. And I think the same thing is true with what the NRA has done. They just simply take one clause out that doesn't fit their needs. And then you have to ask, well, what are you going to do? And the moment you just look at the second clause, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, it can't be read as an absolute. And what Justice Scalia does is he says that when states or when the federal government decide to regulate guns, it's not the low rational basis test that determines whether there's a need for it. It's a higher level of intermediate scrutiny, the precise contents of which are yet to be worked out in the variety of cases. And there's a lot of division in the circuits about which way that particular second tier issue would go. In my view, if the first clause is given its correct reading, you don't have a, a justification problem. What you do is you just have a prohibition on the federal government telling the states how it is that they can regulate the guns, which means that the states can do pretty much what they please unless there's some other constraint upon them, perhaps through the Privileges and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment. So if you think that the, the Supreme Court got the gun control cases wrong, if, if Justice Epstein is on the bench and, and your view carries the day, in, in practical terms, what this looks like is it, it's become a matter of state policy. Is that, is that right? Well, actually, there's one more complication. You'll notice that the last clause that I gave mentioned to you was about the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment. Uh, that clause just simply says, you know, no state shall make or enforce any law that abridges the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the several states. And it's a huge prohibition on what states can do vis-a-vis -vis their own people. And in fact, it's actually transformative of what the federalism was like in the United States in the antebellum period. It's not that Congress can initiate, it's that Congress or the courts can block it. And the reason I say that is the courts can enforce it given their inherent powers of judicial um, review. And uh, Article 5 of the 14th Amendment says Congress shall enforce this amendment by appropriate legislation. So you've got this dual situation. There is a lot of textual evidence which suggests that by 1868, uh, the right to keep and bear arms was thought to be one of the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the several states. And so you could make a privileges and immunities argument, which is not going to be embarrassed by the first clause associated with the Second Amendment. 
the difficulty with that is in the slaughterhouse cases, which wreaked unparalleled damage to the United States in the Reconstruction period. Privileges and immunities was held to cover only two things, basically. One, the right to petition government with grievances, and the second, to use navigable waters. So guns were just dropped down. So in order to get guns back in under privileges and immunities, you also have to toss back in economic liberties, and it's such a huge transformation of the Constitution, it's never going to take place. The history of American constitutional law is often when you make one mistake and then you make a second. How do you play catch up? And it's like an umpire who's made a blunder on one call. There's no instant replay. And so then you try to correct it with a second mistake and you make a third. And by the time you're done, you're off the rails. But in my judgment, at least the way in which current law works, this is by and large a political inquiry subject at most to very minimal restraints based on individual due process as a constitutional matter. That doesn't mean that I'm in favor of the regulation. It just means that the scope of state policy is a lot wider than the defenders of the Second Amendment think. Well, let's let's talk about that distinction then between law and policy. I mean, one of the things that comes up anytime that you have a shooting like this one that just occurred is calls for different kinds of regulation on any number of variables as to who can ha- who can access a gun, who can purchase it, who can have it where. Um, on the on the policy side. How how much faith do you have in those kinds of efforts to get around sort of the, the biggest, the most dramatic instances we have of gun violence like the one that occurred in California last week? Look, I mean my view is one of sort of generally deep skepticism that we can't figure out how to deal with these things in a responsible manner with the menu of choices that is put on the list. There was an excellent column today by a man named Richard Friedman I think in the yes. New York Times and you know he said, look, if you're trying to figure out the number of gun deaths, it's very large but the number which are resulting in mass killings defined as that of four or more people is stunningly small. It's about 0.15% of the total. So why would you want to concentrate on that and ignore the 99.85% of people who die from guns elsewhere? I also sometimes ago looked at the number of killings that took place by knives and by bare hands. These numbers are not trivial even though they're far smaller than guns. So again, I mean the number of people who die from knife wounds is far greater than the number of people who die um, from uh, these mass killings in guns. So I just think that the problem that you want to worry about is sort of the routine kind of killing first, not the dramatic one. Well, what do you do in order to deal with this kind of thing? And what, you know, what Friedman points out is you can start running psychiatric profiles on anybody, but just because people are lunatics doesn't mean that they're stupid. And so what they will do in many cases is they will feign sanity when they're crazy, as happened in the case of the Santa Barbara killing. Um, And the psychiatric people can't figure out what to do with them. So it's extremely difficult to pick these people out in advance. And probably the overlap between the number of people who are truly mentally deranged and the number who are killers may be 4% at most of each population. That is, 96% of insane people don't harm anybody and 90% plus of the harms come from perfectly sane, vicious, ugly, and mean-spirited people. So I just don't see how that's going to work. Um, the people said, well, he got this thing lawfully. If he's that crazy, he could buy it secondhand from somebody in some dark alley. So I don't see how you could deny him the access. The only proposal that actually works, if it works at all, is one that goes in a completely different direction for which there is fierce public resistance, which is to make sure that anybody who is entitled to carry a gun, say as a security officer for the public police or the federal government or some private police force, carries a concealed weapon when they're off duty. Because what happens right now is you take 
a situation in which you get a mass killer. And if he's the only guy who has the gun, he's going to kill a lot of people before help can be called. If this were in a cafeteria and there were 30 people in that place who had firearms, um, uh, they could take him out in a second. And knowing that, the guy probably would not want to do it. Uh, you certainly can't use punishment after the fact because the guy committed suicide. But what happens is these guys just don't want to commit suicide. If they wanted to do that, they could go into a back room of their own house and blow their brains out. They want to take down people before they commit suicide. So standard criminal law theory of deterrence cannot apply uh, to folks who are willing to take themselves out. And unless you're prepared to increase the number of people who have guns, I think you're going to constantly see a large number of mass killings. The place that I would look to would be a place like Israel where the threat of mass killings is always important uh, given the instability of Jewish-Palestinian relationships. I think those people carry lots of guns and they actually have a relative there'll be few mass killings. Um, so I think that's what you have to do if you're going to do something at all. How you do it, you know, I'm not an implementation management guy. I have some ideas about this, but I certainly would move the Constitution, the discussion, of not to the Constitution, but in that direction, figuring out how it is that we could make sure that no one person who is armed can find himself in an environment where everybody else is helpless and defenseless. The final question that I'll ask you, this is only the latest in a, a series of these that have been very high profile over the past couple of years. There was the shooting in Arizona, the movie theater in Colorado, probably most visibly and most shockingly to most people was the, the shooting in, in Newtown, Connecticut. And for – despite all of those, the thing that has uh, – the upshot of all of this has been that there hasn't really been any significant change in, in how we handle guns as a legal matter. So my, my question for you, regardless of what the law or politics may allow, have we sort of just reached an equilibrium on this where for the foreseeable future, things are going to stay roughly the way they are? And if so, is, is that a good thing or a bad thing? Well, I, I think it is going to stay pretty much where it is because each side has a blocking coalition against any reform that the other side would want to push. Um, one of the difficulties that you have with standard gun control measures is that they are very comprehensive. They're clearly overbroad. Uh, what they do is they drive lawful people off the streets so they don't have guns, increasing the percentage of guns in the hands of unlawful individuals. There is still the John Lott, more guns, less crime debate that's out there, which has not been, to my mind, resolved conclusively one way or another. It's really a very complicated situation since there's so many moving parts. Uh, everybody has his or her empirical evidence on this thing. So I just don't see this moving in, in any kind of a constructive fashion. So my own sense about this is I'm skeptical on both points. I'm skeptical about the NRA's position on the Second Amendment. In fact, I've written on multiple occasions in multiple places and I think that it gets it wrong. And I'm also skeptical on the reformers who think that the kind of uh, gun control measures that they can dream up will actually stop the problem. Look, this is a country of 300 million people. God knows probably each year if you take into account accidental and violent deaths of one sort or another, you're talking about 50,000, 100,000 people dying at least. There are close to 40,000 people a year who die from automobile accidents of one sort or another. The thought that somehow or other you can now figure out a set of regulations that's going to stop the most controversial, gruesome and ugly 20 killings per year, it's just not in the cards. And, and so what I think in effect what people ought to do is to work on other measures. I'll mention one other here. Um, 
If you're going to legalize guns, what you want to do is to legalize and make very cheap the way in which people are instructed in their use and their protection and their care. I don't care about regulations, but what I would actually do is call up the NRA, which runs a lot of these programs, and ask them, how do you do it? And tell me, have you ever found any people in your programs who, once they've been instructed by you, actually go out and commit crimes of violence of one sort or another? Um, if it turns out that they don't, then it may be that the path of re resistance and highest term is to essentially subsidize the instruction and the proper use of guns. But there's going to be such an ideological outburst of opposition to that particular position that I really don't think that it will happen. I mean, I'm kind of proud of the fact that I'm sort of alone on this debate, skeptical of both the reformers on the one hand and the constitutional movers on the other hand. I do think, in effect, more low-level measures might be able to improve this situation. Um, any single death is tragic, but the ability to protect to predict and to prevent future death is an art which we do not have under control today and will not have under control for the foreseeable future. All right, Richard. Thank you as always and thanks to our listeners. Remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at hoover.org. You can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.